Welcome to the Podcast Journal Club, brought to you by Wellspan Health. On this podcast, we work as one to evaluate and share the latest medical literature. I'm Giselle Arney, the Interim Sports Medicine Fellowship Director. And I'm Sonia Del Tredici, the Associate Program Director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program and an academic internist. On today's episode, Dr. Del Tredici will be presenting three articles uh, regarding risk reduction for opioid use. What will you be sharing with us today? Thanks, Giselle. I found these articles as I was doing my annual maintenance of certification work for my addiction medicine board specialty. So in addiction medicine, there's a concept called harm reduction, which means rather than work to eliminate the addiction, which would be our goal, but is not always possible, we work to make the addiction less harmful. So rather than working on not having the person inject heroin, we work on So if they're going to inject heroin, how can we make it so they don't get HIV, say? So some examples of harm reduction include things like needle exchanges, or some might even say going on methadone or buprenorphine. We're not eliminating the opiate, we're just eliminating the harm from the opiate. Um, So I have two articles and then a current event topic to discuss. Excellent. What is the first article you have for us today? The first one I want to talk about is published in the BMJ in 2017, and the title is Mortality Risk During and After Opiate Substitution Treatment. And by that, they mean either methadone or buprenorphine. And it's a meta-analysis, not an original study. So why is this study important? So as all of us in medicine know, by now, opiate use is the leading cause of death among adults in the U.S., and it continues to increase worldwide. We treat opiate use disorder with other opiates, which are methadone and buprenorphine, um, and that treatment has been shown to reduce drug use and overdose deaths. Um, However, there's concerns that um, there'll be an increase in overdose deaths among, during the initiation time of methadone and buprenorphine as patients make that transition. And there's also concerns that there's an increase in overdose deaths as patients transition off of those treatments. And so this meta-analysis is particularly important because it's the biggest one to date, um, and it combines all of the previous high-quality methadone and buprenorphine studies to try to answer that question. What would you say the specific clinical question is for this meta-analysis? So the population um, that they look at was basically every patient in every high-quality methadone or buprenorphine study since 1974. So that covers about 140,000 patients, mostly um, high-income countries, United States, Europe, and Australia. Most of these patients are men, about 70%, and most of them were on methadone, which is a treatment that has the longest track record. Only about 16,000 of the 140,000 were on buprenorphine. The intervention that this study looked at was the initiation of methadone and buprenorphine. Um, The comparison was, as we would say, business as usual. These are not always randomized controlled trials because this is a very difficult group and population to randomize. Outcome was mortality, um, a very hard outcome that we care about, and they looked at mortality in the four weeks after initiating treatment and then also in the four weeks after treatment was over, although that data is not as strong. So mostly we're going to be looking at mortality after treatment is started, because we certainly don't want to do a treatment that then causes people to die. That would be bad. Certainly. Do you feel that the study is valid? I do. When you're examining a meta-analysis, there are certain things you need to look at to determine the quality of the meta-analysis. And for our resident listeners out there, there's an excellent article that I will put in the show notes from the JAMA User's Guide to the Medical Literature about how to evaluate a meta-analysis. This one, I think, is very high quality. They 
used pre-specified inclusion and exclusion criteria for which studies are going to include. They had two investigators who independently reviewed and extracted the data, and then when there was not agreement, a third investigator stepped in to help reach consensus. Um, they used pre-specified validated instruments to assess the quality of the studies, and so that means they, they didn't decide as they went along what was going to be good or not. They, they sort of tried to set it ahead of time. Um, they also made sure, I thought this was very interesting, the study included 22 cohorts of patients, and they made sure that there was no single cohort that skewed the results, because sometimes there'll be, in a meta-analysis, there'll be one study that looks very different from everything else, and that drags all the results towards it. So what they did is they recalculated the results 21 times for every outcome they were looking at while removing each cohort at a time, and saw that the results remained consistent with the elimination of each cohort separately. So that means that there was no single cohort that skewed the results. Um, it was a very large size, 100, so 122,885 patients on methadone and 15,831 patients on buprenorphine. And they had great follow-up um, because patients are motivated to stay in these programs. They had really good follow-up data, um, greater than 90% in at least 17 of the 21 cohorts. So I think it was a very good uh, meta-analysis. Sounds like it was very well put together and has a large patient population to help us out. So what were the results of this study? So it's all about data. And since we're on audio, I, you can't show the many, many scatter plots, tables, and graphs that were accompanied, uh, that accompanied this article. But I'm going to give the main points. So first we talk about methadone. They divided it into two. So on methadone, mortality, as they, as people had feared, was higher during the first four weeks of initiation. And then after that first four weeks, mortality drops and stays low. Um, and again, mortality rises first four weeks after leaving treatment, and then again, drops. So just to get a sense of what we're talking about, we want to know how dangerous is, you know, being a heroin user and how dangerous is it when you're on methadone. When you're not in treatment and you're an opiate user, mortality 3.6% per year. So three to four out of 100 patients will die per year who are not on treatment. Once they get into treatment, it's about 1%. So one out of 100 will die per year. So mortality drops 3.6 per 100 per year to one per 100 per year going on to methadone treatment. Um, for buprenorphine, because it's a much safer drug, there was no increase in mortality when treatment was started, but again, there was an increase in mortality once patients left treatment. So that's point number one. Another interesting finding is that while methadone really reduced mortality a lot more than buprenorphine, overall mortality was lower on buprenorphine. And I really, to me, that says that methadone is more effective, but it's possibly more dangerous. And that plays out... Um, in our clinical sense that methadone is used for our sicker patients. Um, buprenorphine, which is safer and easier to use, gets used first, but it's not necessarily as effective. Um, and so then we transition patients to methadone, a higher risk treatment, but one that has greater chance of success. It sounds like you're already considering how you would use this in your patient population and your patient care. Are there specific takeaways from here about how you'll change your patient practice? Yeah, I mean, I prescribe buprenorphine, and due to various state and federal laws, I can't prescribe methadone for um, opiate use disorder. But to me, it really reinforces the fact that going on to treatment reduces uh, mortality. And the other thing that I take away from this in terms of my personal practice is the time of initiation and the time of um, 
leaving treatment are very vulnerable for patients. That's when patients would need extra support. Um, and also, as I said, I don't do methadone, but it reinforces that we need to take precautions that our initial methadone doses are not too high. I think sometimes patients are started on higher dose methadone and that can lead to unintentional overdose. Excellent. Well, thank you for presenting this article. It was a really great start to our harm reduction for our opioid patients. Um, could you share with us the next article? Yes. So the next article is on another method of harm reduction, which is giving out naloxone, or it's a brand name Narcan nasal spray, to prevent overdoses. And this was a study that was published in the journal titled Addictive Behavior. Um, and it's titled No Evidence of Compensatory Drug Use Risk Behavior Among Heroin Users After Receiving Take-Home Naloxone. So I can understand why this might be concerning for people to get a take-home naloxone and feel like maybe they're at um, increased risk of saying, hey, it's fine for me to use my drugs because I have this to stop it. Why do you feel that this study is important? Well, again, overdose death is the leading cause of death among young people in the United States. And when I say young, we're not talking teenagers and 20-somethings. We're talking all adults under 50. Um, after 50, heart disease becomes a little more important. But under 50, opiate overdose is the leading cause of death. Um, naloxone is an opiate antagonist, so it can reverse an overdose immediately. It's very easy to use. It's not that expensive. It's almost universally effective if you use it in an opiate overdose. Um, and so it's a great drug. Um, it's been shown to reduce opiate overdose rates, but there's a fear, like you said, oh, we're just giving people away that they can use as much as they want, and then they can overdose, then they can just be brought back, and then they can use more. And so if we give these things out, people will just use more drugs, not fewer drugs. So that's the concern. Um, to me, it doesn't ring true because, as we've seen, opiate use has become scarier and scarier and scarier in recent years, and it's not that fear is not really um, causing people to use less. Um, so I think I think saying that you know people won't be afraid of overdose is not going to encourage them to use more drugs. So what this study looked at is whether providing naloxone to users would increase or lower their risky behavior. And how did they set up their clinical question to study this? So they looked at current or former heroin users, and so former meaning less than six months in treatment. Um, you had to have the DSM-5 criteria for opiate use disorder. Um, they were mostly men, again, and average duration of heroin use in this population was 17 years. So these are long-time heroin users. Um, they could be in treatment with methadone or suboxone, buprenorphine, but it had to be less than six months of treatment. The intervention was giving them naloxone and a training on how to use it. Um, so they were trained on what's the risk factor for an overdose, how to recognize an overdose, and how to use the naloxone. Comparison was their behavior prior to receiving naloxone. So this is a pre and post study, not a randomized controlled trial. And the outcomes they looked at, this is the risky drug behavior. So bags of heroin use per day, number of days with polysubstance use, so using heroin plus other things, which is a risk for overdose, and a score that measures impairment from heroin use. Um, so those are the three things they looked at. And in the way that they set up this study, do you feel that it's valid? Yeah, it was a pretty good size. It had 130 people in it, 69 of whom were on methadone or buprenorphine, so about half in treatment and half not in treatment. Um, it was not a randomized controlled trial, which would have really been good. You know, half the people get naloxone, the other half don't. Instead, it was a before and after. Um, 
It relied on self-reported measures of drug use and behavior. So that's, again, not quite as good as studies that would use, say, urine drug screens as an objective measure of how much people are using. But it's easier to do if you use self-report. Um, follow-up was very complete. They had over 90% follow-up um, at three months, and they achieved that by paying people to be in the study. So you got, uh, I think, $50 to sign up and $25 for every visit you showed up for um, to complete your study assessments. Um, funding was good. It was funded by a NIDA grant, so it's not funded by, like, the naloxone company. So I think it was could have been better, but not bad in terms of quality. We'll take it. So what yeah. are the results <laughs> of this study? So um, among active heroin users, after they got the training, their use did decrease at the one-month and three-month check-in. So they averaged at the beginning about six bags of heroin a day. At three months, they're averaging about four bags of heroin a day. And that's both clinically and statistically significant. That, so those are people who are using heroin. Those who are using buprenorphine or methadone did not have any decrease, um, statistically significant decrease in use. So it was a little bit of a decrease, but it didn't reach significance. The active users also decreased their polydrug use. And again, that's important because using multiple drugs leads to overdose. So it decreased from about eight days a month to six days a month. And they also decreased their scores of impairment from drug use. Um, it did not change their use of alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, or benzodiazepines, which were also outcomes. So patients continued to use all their other drugs the same as they were, but the heroin use decreased. So this may not necessarily change your particular practice, but are there ways that you hope that this article will help change other people's practice? Yeah, I mean, this article just really gives us more confidence that if we give out naloxone to people, we are not going to cause them to use more drugs. Um, and distributing naloxone is a state priority, and often it's done by public health groups rather than individual physicians in their offices. So I hope it gives public health groups some sense that they're doing the right thing by giving out naloxone rather than just making the problem worse. Um, I would feel even more confident if this had been a slightly different study, as we said, a randomized controlled trial. Um, I worry about selection bias, meaning the patients who agreed to be in this study are already ones who would likely respond to the intervention, the getting the naloxone, who are interested in naloxone. Um, so that would give us even stronger data. But at least, it, at least it didn't show that things got worse. Excellent. So those were two articles in the literature recently. And your third article for us is a very interesting, timely topic and of current events uh, here in Pennsylvania. So will you share this final article with us? Yes. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about a third type of harm reduction called a safe injection site. So there's proposals um, that are passing through the state legislature in Pennsylvania right now to help legalize and establish a safe injection site in probably a neighborhood called Kensington in Philadelphia. So Kensington is known as, quote, the Walmart of heroin. Um, there's a huge open-air drug market there. You can just go and purchase whatever opiate you want. Um, there was a really amazing photo essay in the New York Times about two years ago about Kensington, and I'll include a link in the show notes as well. Um, Philadelphia had 1,100 opiate overdose deaths last year, which is the largest in any major city in the U.S., and that's despite an extremely active harm reduction community. So they have needle exchange, they give out naloxone, they have buprenorphine, they have methadone treatment, they have a lot of treatment options, and deaths continue to increase, mostly driven by fentanyl. So 
the safe injection site that they want to open is a place where an injection drug user could go and you can safely inject your heroin or your fentanyl or whatever you have. And safe just means there's clean needles, you can get clean works, the equipment you would use to, to prepare your heroin and inject it. A monitor, actually a medical person who could monitor you for overdose and um, use Narcan if needed. Um, and a safe space to be while you're intoxicated so you don't get raped, assaulted, robbed, run over by a train, whatever, while you are under the influence. Um, safe injection spaces do exist in other countries, and research has shown that their presence leads to lower drug use and lower overdose deaths overall in their surrounding neighborhoods. Oh, and just another thing to say about a safe injection site, it's also an entrance to treatment. Anybody who would be interested in opiate use treatment, um, they can start the process at the safe injection site. So unfortunately, the you know, federal government, our U.S. attorney, has vowed to fight the opening of any safe injection sites, feeling that it encourages drug use and basically makes the problem worse. Um, however, a federal judge ruled in October that it is legal. It does not violate federal law. Um, but most people, the other problem is most people in the U.S. say it might be a good idea, but they don't want one in their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So where are we supposed to put it? Um, people really fear it will attract drug users. Um, and will encourage more use. So I'm interested. I don't know. What do you think about safe injection sites? Is it too much? Is it going too far to help people use their drugs? It's so interesting. You know, I'm glad to hear that it's been done in other countries and we have some data behind it that they are helpful and decrease deaths overall. So that is reassuring in a sense. But I can certainly understand, you know, is this encouraging the behavior or allowing it to happen? But I think we have a lot of other harm reduction studies for other things like the needle exchanges or like the ones we talked about by giving naloxone where we are actually showing harm reduction and we're not necessarily affecting their behavior of drug use, but we are reducing their harm of death and other um, morbidities. So in that sense, it seems like maybe it's a great idea, but it, it does feel, I do feel very hesitant about it. It still just sounds... Sounds like too much. Yes. The thing that really made a difference for me in learning about harm reduction was chatting with a woman who works for the Needle Exchange in York, and she's a mother who's, um, you know, she has a child who was very involved in heroin use, um, and she had said, you know, she said to me, which really resonated, is the choice is not do I use heroin or not for most of these people. It's not a willpower thing. It's not like they can just choose not to use it, and when your child is out there, you're not asking, should he use heroin or not? You're asking, should he use a clean needle or not for his heroin? Mm -hmm. That's the question. If your child's out there, would you rather they inject under the bridge at the train tracks? Or would you rather they inject in a, the Methodist church mm -hmm. with a nurse who's got Narcan standing mm -hmm. by? Those are really our two choices, not will he use heroin or not. Yeah. Um, and so that really changed my mind about safe injection sites. And again, it's reassuring looking at some of this other data that it doesn't increase drug use, in mm -hmm. fact, tends to decrease drug use in the area. So mm -hmm. it's a very thoughtful perspective. Well, we had several very interesting articles today on harm reduction in our opioid using patients. Are there any other topics that you want to discuss about this or that you put together from all of the articles or information you want to share with our audience today? No, just for those of you in WellSpan and all departments, there are a lot of resources for treating your patients with opiate use disorder. So feel free to reach out to me personally um, or any of our addiction um, medicine people in WellSpan. If you run into a patient who needs help, there's a lot of help out there and we're ready to give it for patients who are interested. Perfect. 
Well, thank you everyone for joining us for our pilot episode of the Podcast Journal Club brought to you by Wellspan Health. 